Hello and welcome to this second edition of Podularity for January 2010. My name is George Miller, and with much of Great Britain still blanketed in snow, it's perhaps appropriate that this week's podcast takes us east to Poland. My guest today is a distinguished Australian travel writer, Michael Moran. Half a dozen years ago, Michael published an enthralling account of his travels in Oceania in Beyond the Coral Sea, and in 2008 he followed that with A Country in the Moon, Travels in Search of the Heart of Poland. That book, like its predecessor, was lavishly praised by the critics. The Guardian, for example, called it the best contemporary travel book on Poland. And the book achieved the considerable feat of managing to convey all the humour and absurdity of daily life in Poland that Michael found in the early 1990s, just after the end of communism, while also tackling the big, dark, often tragic themes of Polish history, without trivialising one or lessening the brio of the other. Michael has now made his home in Poland, but before we get on to the reasons that made him stay, I wanted to know what took him to the country in the first place. A number of things. First of all, probably the music of Chopin, that was the first thing, because my family had always played Chopin and my uncle was a concert pianist. Secondly, after the fall of the Berlin Wall, I was very curious about what was behind the Iron Curtain, and it was very exciting. To, to explore what might be there and also not many people had been to Poland. The third reason was really that my my mother posted the application <laughs> and because I was rather horrified at this at the time but she was a, a bit like travels with my aunt you know she was very adventurous and she said I was in a rut in London. And the, the title of the book A Country in the Moon gives some indication of the degree of unfamiliarity that yeah. this European country still holds for, for many people. Absolutely. And I chose the title, it was actually a remark made by Edmund Burke in 1795, after the final partition of Poland. He said, uh, for us, in fact, Poland may be considered a country in the moon. In fact, there was a great deal of disillusionment and, in fact, horror in Europe at the disappearance of Poland from the European map. It's just that people were powerless to do anything about this partition. So you arrived in Poland and you confess in the book you didn't know a great deal about about Polish history or culture. So what kind of expectations did you have of this of this new country where you'd arrived? Mainly uh, hijacking of cars and Kalashnikov rifles to be honest and uh, this sounds terribly prejudiced but you must remember I'm an Australian and as an Australian I was absolutely ignorant of Poland. I mean, in Europe, there are many accepted prejudices about this country, and I wasn't even familiar with those. So I didn't really know what to expect. As I said to you, I remember going to Poland on the aircraft listening to Chopin's first piano concerto, and that was the first music I listened to the first night I arrived at this extraordinary place, uh, this Ostrodek, and uh, I thought, what have I done? I really did think that. You had gone there to, to lead a team of Brits who were going to train Poles to deal with a market economy. That's in it. Yes. So, talk, so what did you discover? The, the centre where you were based wasn't a state-of-the-art conference facility by any means. No, but actually there were, there were, I think, more significant problems with the English staff than there were with the Poles to begin with because it was terribly hard to recruit people to go to, to Poland. No one wanted to go in those days. This was 1992. No one wanted to go. So we had an extraordinary crew. I mean, one was uh, 
graduate in Oriental Studies from Oxford, another was a Morris dancer, another one was a, a, cave, a caver from Yorkshire, and another chap a black belt in karate from somewhere in Essex. And I, as an Australian, I had to try and get this group of people together. And we had all arrived in some state of bemusement at this, they're called Ashrodics. And basically they were communist conference centres. And everybody in every occupation did a conference once or twice in their life. So you went there to have a great party, drink a lot of vodka, and there'd be a bit of ideological input. And this is what we had started to do. And I remember there was an overturned bust of Lenin in the corner. <laughs> so it's all deeply symbolic. And how did you find the people you were, the, the, the Poles you were working with as, as colleagues and as, as, as students? Well, well, they were marvellous. I mean, I would say seriously professional compared to the English crew that went out there. They were seriously professional in that, you know, to be a language teacher, we, it was a program that had language teaching, business training, accountancy, um, computer studies and things like that. Now, they had studied English philology for five years. Most of us who, who were doing language teaching had done a sort of four-week course or, or a 12-week <laughs> course, you know. And so consequently, their knowledge of English grammar and usage was often superior. And I was terribly impressed with the quickness. And I think this is obvious today, that the Poles can assimilate very quickly and they learn fast. So you were based near Warsaw, and you call Warsaw in the book the most representative capital in Europe. Can you say what you mean by the most representative? Well, Warsaw was 85% destroyed during the Second World War. And so consequently, because of this, you get an impression, architecturally speaking, of many, many different periods, probably all of the significant ideological periods in European history, at least as back as far as the beginning of the 18th century. And I, I feel that it's representative because of mainly the, the periods of destruction and rebuilding. I think that's, that's the, it's representative of the great spirit of renewal that all Europeans feel. Um, Theatre groups are often taken to Warsaw and the, the theme of the courses they do is called reconstruction. And, and I think that um, because Poland was the theatre of the Second World War, it's very representative of certain aspects of the human spirit in an intense way, the struggle for freedom, the resistance against oppression, the feeling of, a, of an imperishable nation, that type of thing. And Warsaw is definitely the concentration of that because it was destroyed and then rebuilt under terribly difficult circumstances. And you say in the book, I'm, I'm paraphrasing you here though, but you say that it's a city which demands a sort of moral response Absolutely. from the visitor because of the nature of its past and the way in which its past is. Yes, and the reason for this is because as you wander these streets, you don't see plaques to, say, Victor Hugo, a great poet of this time, or, 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 or such. What you see are memorials to, for example, 400 people were, were um, burnt to death with flamethrowers in this place in a hospital, including the doctors. Then you move on a bit further and you'll come to another plaque that says 50 were executed by Hitlerite forces at this point. And I mean, if you wander around a city where these are the main monuments, it, be, it makes you think quite seriously about uh, human nature mm. and, and what it's capable of. And it must have been a challenge in writing this book 
to keep some kind of balance between the humor of everyday life、mm-hmm. and also the the great weight of Polish history, which is often very oppressive. With the humor, the <laughs> the humor dominated everything. Actually, I mean, when I've always thought that when you come to new cultures, you should write down your impressions. As you first arrive, the first impressions really stay with you. Once you familiarise yourself with the culture, you actually don't notice things. So it was really the surreal. What I thought was very surrealistic behaviour and unpredictable nature of of Polish culture at that time. You must remember this was 1992, just after the fall of communism, and at that time life was being invented on a daily basis, because actually Poles. Were completely unfamiliar with this type of freedom,、mm. and、uh, I think that was, that's what brought great humour to the to the situation、um, was the lack of predictable behaviour. Yes,、mm. and you introduced an element of incongruity of your own by choosing to drive around Poland in a Rolls Royce. That must have <laughs> that must have amused the Poles almost as much as they amused you. Well, Poles are very keen on motor cars. I mean, I'd owned this car for a very long time. I mean, twenty-five years or something, and and I wasn't interested in it for social reasons. I was interested in it because of engineering, and the fact that、um, with a car like this, imperfections all come together to create a most beautiful solution. The poles loved it. They used to rush over to it, and、uh, they would give me small lectures. I mean, some of them were experts on 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 the constituents of the metals in the radiator, for example. Extraordinary, and it it also gave you a, a great opportunity to explore the country in 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 a stylish way. Yes,、uh, yes, I suppose you could say. I just found it terribly exciting to be driving the car in a very remote region with absolutely no chance of being saved, if you like. I I just got a bit of an adrenaline rush from it.、Uh, I like this. That's why I don't like really going on classic car rallies. It's all too safe for me. Also, a lot of distinguished poles, you know, Shikors, General Shikorsky and、uh, Pilsudski and Schmigli-Rids and all of them, actually had Rolls Royces, and I felt that it connected me with the Polish aristocracy, if you like, that has completely disappeared, almost in in terms of people's idea of poles. They think of Poland mainly as a working-class society, but of course, it it, it wasn't always like this.、Uh, only after the Second World War had wiped out. Middle class and aristocratic intellectuals, intelligentsia, and so on. Tell me a bit about Chopin's place in in Polish life,、oh. culture. I mean, he's obviously very important to you, but tell me how how important he is to to Poles. Th- there's a word in Polish,、uh, wieszcz.、Um, I'm probably incorrectly pronouncing it, but it, it, it means a seer or a bard. Now, Adam Mickiewicz, who wrote the great national epic Pan Tadeusz, was one of these. He, it's like a In German, they were known as a dichter. A dichter. It's, 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 it's. There's not really an equivalent English for this. And he expresses everything about、uh, the Polish struggle for freedom and this very curious quality called żal in Polish, which is a melancholy of loss that increases in the person to a frenzy and almost anger, fierceness. And when you listen to Chopin's music. It's often very lyrical and nostalgic, and then it becomes quite military and quite savage in the central sections, and then it goes back to a sort of nostalgic reminiscence. And I, I think Chopin is 
I mean, it's hard to imagine any composer of any country that is as important to the people as, as Chopin is to Poles. He's been treated with sort of dismissiveness. You talk in the book about how he was seen as a composer of mm. sort of salon music and trifles. And do you think, in a way, that's emblematic of the way in which Western European culture has, has looked upon Poland, Polish culture in, in general in, in, in recent decades or centuries? See, it's still a mystery to me why Poland hasn't been treated seriously as a country. Of course, it wasn't favoured by geography. I mean, it has no natural uh, boundaries to resist marauding foes. You know, it has. It only has the mountain chain, at the mountain chain at the uh, in the south. And I think that Poles, they're not taken sufficiently. They don't take themselves sufficiently seriously either. They they lack self confidence. Um, the foreign minister, Radek Sikorski, said exactly the same thing, that Poles should be much more self-confident about their own culture. And as an Australian who is untouched by all of, as I said, European prejudice, I, I feel exactly the same way. Do you see signs, I mean, you, you, as you say, your book focuses particularly on the, the early years after the end of communism. Do you see in the last two decades that changing significantly? There are a great number of changes on the surface. I mean, it's become a consumer society. It's a big, you know, 38 million people. It's a big consumer market. But where you look at the, yes, the ability to purchase things certainly is there. The maintenance of these things is not, not there particularly strongly. I, I would say that the bureaucracy hasn't changed significantly. It's still a bit of a minefield. Certainly, the queuing system is now more electronic, so it's easier to deal with. But there are many vested interests in the old communist way of thinking, and it will take a couple of generations to, to, to get rid of this. Young Poles could be on another planet to their parents. They are exuberant. They are not particularly interested in digging up the past. Poland's rather a, a country obsessed with with, with its past and uh, young Poles want to move on you know they want to become cosmopolitan they want to become part of a modern and free European Union and certainly this is taking place but you can't expect 50 or 60 years as we are accustomed to of development to be telescoped into into 20 or 30 years uh, and uh, consequently there are flaws but I mean basically what's been achieved in Poland is a miracle in my opinion Poles have learnt terribly quickly, I think. Tell me how important grappling with the Polish language was to you and getting to grips with understanding what makes the Poles tick. It's a terribly difficult language. And I, I, re I really, I had to learn that I'm not a brilliant linguist. This was a terrible lesson and it still is. And, and what's difficult about it? I think if you have to learn a, lang a Slavonic language at a later age in life, it's more difficult simply because of the huge number of exceptions the, the case system is complex and in language studies they put Polish together with Korean and Vietnamese in, in degrees of difficulty. Now I can manage on an everyday level of course but to have a long conversation in Polish you know the the elephant has moved on you know I mean people people uh, get bored waiting for me to um, to come to terms with the, with, with the right case system because being a bit of an academic I'm not awfully good at making public mistakes, you know. I'm told that this is a ridiculous attitude, but I can't get, I can't get over it. But nonetheless, the understanding of Polish that you have, does that, does that enable you to have insights into the way people think that would be close to you if you were relying on someone to interpret for you? 
I think what I would miss is the wonderful Polish sense of humour. Now the Polish sense of humour is very Monty Python-esque and Monty Python is very, very popular in Poland. Mm. And I think that's what I miss. Otherwise, I would say no, because most educated Poles speak English very well. And, uh, I mean, certainly reading poetry, of course, uh, I miss a great deal. But in everyday life, I mean, I, I don't think so, actually. I don't think I... But you see, Malinowski, the great Polish ethnologist, said of the Trobrind Islands, no language, no penetration. And, of course, this is quite true. But in many ways, I think, in writing a book you need actually to be filtered from information, you know. And I think my n limited knowledge of the language at the time I was in Poland was actually probably a good thing. Uh, it would have overwhelmed me otherwise. You went to Poland in 1992 with no particular ambitions to, to make your home there. But that is now the case. And I wondered if you could just say how Poland has changed you over the, the course of those last 18 years or so. I like a number of things about Poland today. One of them is the extraordinary personal freedom you have there. Now, what, what do I mean by this? I mean that if you're driving through the countryside, you can stop anywhere. You can have a picnic anywhere. No one is going to come up and be a policeman, you know, and ask you to move on. People are very interested if you are interested in the country. They go to great lengths to assist you, uh, to take you places. In my musical studies, of course, being in the country where Chopin was born uh, and also the centre of all of the academic work on this composer has been an absolute revelation to me and my attitude to him changed completely from being uh, a salon composer influenced by the French to being a deeply patriotic Polish composer, almost fully formed when he left Poland forever. And I think this is very important, musically speaking, my, the other great thing, I think, is the Polish landscape, which is relatively untouched for many interesting reasons, political reasons. Um, the Russians, for example, didn't touch a certain very large uh, bird sanctuary because it was actually a strategic barrier for invasion and it was a very good military protective device. And so I love the primeval forest, for example, of Białowieża. There are areas of Poland that are absolutely unique in Europe and hardly anyone is there. So th these are the things that have changed my... I'm not as frenetic, you know. I, when I lived in London, I was always comparing myself to other people and rushing and losing my sense of identity. And I think perhaps I've, I've gained a much greater sense of my own identity in this country, which... which uh, it's a strange thing because I'm a sort of northern Italian type, you know. I imagine myself in Umbria, not in Poland. <laughs> Towards the end of the book, you say, I sometimes wonder if I'm in love with an illusion, a Poland that no longer exists or has never existed. And I thought it was a very interesting reflection. Can you just expand a little on that? When I look at the past, you see, I probably would like to have been a 19th century cavalry officer. This is the, the point. I, I, I'm terribly attracted to this type of thing. Some of the, the most glorious periods of Polish history were in the 17th, 18th and 19th centuries, even though they were punctuated by large numbers of heroic failures in battles and so on. Modern Poland, I have very mixed feelings sometimes. I mean, the, the government is sometimes quite embarrassing in its policies towards the European Union. Many Poles uh, 
uh, involved in sort of what, what you might call Aravist sort of uh, behaviour, very nouveau riche and uh, not particularly cultured, you know. Modern Poland is a very different thing to my imagination of, of the, the past, the golden era of the country. But, you know, e Enoch Powell said something very interesting once. He said, um, nations just as much as individuals live largely in their imagination. And, of course, I, I do have this imaginative view of Poland, and I think the British have an imaginative view of Britain, and the French have the same of France. And I think that was probably the basis of this. So even if you see yourself as, as an Umbrian, part of your soul is a, is a Polish cavalry officer? W well, yes, perhaps that's why I love... Uh, well, they drive very fast mm. in Poland, certainly. <laughs> but um, I like the dash, you know? Mm. The, the lack of... Um, it's very good not to always consider consequences. And this is a very Polish characteristic, just for the glory of the thing. That's why Napoleon loved them, of course. I was talking to Michael Moran about A Country in the Moon, Travels in Search of the Heart of Poland, which is available now in paperback. I hope you can join me again soon for another episode of Podularity, and until then, thank you very much for listening, and goodbye.